Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Aura Okumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The inauguration of a Hindu temple in India today is something much more than a religious milestone. It's a re-election campaign triumph for Prime Minister Narendra Modi and symbolic of the slow remaking of a once proudly secular state. And there's a lot of bad poetry out there, whereby there, I mean social media. Our correspondent lays out precisely what makes it so bad. And it's not just that it doesn't follow standard poetic forms or use nice words. It's just that it doesn't feel true. First up, though. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was once seen as the biggest threat to Donald Trump becoming the Republican presidential candidate. But now, he's out of the running. But I can't ask our supporters to volunteer their time and donate their resources if we don't have a clear path to victory. Accordingly, I am today suspending my campaign. In a message delivered on X, he thanked his supporters. He also left with some parting messages about the two remaining candidates. Trump is superior to the current incumbent, Joe Biden. That is clear. He has my endorsement because we can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear, a repackaged form of warmed over corporatism that Nikki Haley represents. The days of putting Americans last. So what does Mr. DeSantis's bowing out mean for the future of the party? Ron DeSantis's campaign for the Republican presidential nomination ended in the same place it began and in similar fashion. John Prido is our US editor and the host of Checks and Balance, our podcast on American politics. He launched his campaign in a live stream with Elon Musk and it was glitchy and embarrassing. All right, sorry about that. We, we've got so many people here that I think we are, we are uh, kind of melting the servers. Can, are you there? Can you hear us? I think you broke the I'm right, here. I know. I think, I think you broke the internet there. We had over half a million people in one It was meant to reveal how au fait he was with current communications technology, and instead it was a bit more like dad dancing. He's now withdrawn from the race. He posted a video to that effect on X, and that video was humiliating in a different sort of way because he wound up endorsing Donald Trump, the person who's been tormenting him for the past few months. Okay, John, so why has Ron DeSantis quit the race now? DeSantis was hoping that by pouring a lot of time and resources into Iowa, the first contest in the Republican primary, he could win there and then gain the thing that politicos talk about all the time in these primaries' momentum. 
He visited every county in Iowa, spent lots of time there, and ended up coming a very distant second to Donald Trump. Now, the next state up, which votes this week, is New Hampshire. And there, Nikki Haley is polling better than Ron DeSantis was. So he was looking at coming second in the first contest in Iowa, third in the second contest in New Hampshire. And then the third contest up is South Carolina. That's Nikki Haley's home state. It's hard to imagine Ron DeSantis would have come first or second there either. At that point, his campaign, I think, would effectively have been over. So he can read polling numbers. He's looked at those and he's pulled the plug on the whole thing. And perhaps ultimately he didn't have much choice in this. Donors were fleeing his campaign, as were his staffers. Where did it all go wrong for Mr DeSantis? It's a really good question, Ori, because if you go back to a year ago, DeSantis was billed as the respectable, youthful face of Trumpism. There was this idea that you could have MAGA and the policies that Trump voters liked without Donald Trump at the top. And Ron DeSantis has a pretty solid resume. He's governor of Florida. Unlike Donald Trump, he actually has genuine blue-collar roots. He went to Yale and Harvard off his own merit. He's a Navy veteran. He has a young and photogenic family, et cetera, et cetera. All of that stuff looks like it was sort of made in a candidate laboratory. Republican voters liked his stance on COVID as governor of Florida. He kept the state open, refusing to lock down mainly. But it's true that he didn't run a good campaign. In fact, the air seemed to start going out of it almost as soon as he launched. So despite a seemingly strong CV, he still couldn't get Republican voters on side. John, let's dig into that. Why wasn't he able to convert that into success? Well, it's a bit of a puzzle, Ori. And there is a sort of Washington, D.C. Politico answer to it, which was that he turned out to be not such a good candidate after all, and his campaign was bad. People have said that he wasn't particularly charismatic or persuasive and They've highlighted flaws in his campaign, both in terms of personnel. He let a key staffer go early on who has gone to Donald Trump's campaign and he made various missteps along the way. All of that is true. It's also true that he was trying to walk this strange line, trying to replace Donald Trump but not attack him head on because he wanted Trump voters to come over to him directly. So all of those things are true and yet I don't think they explain what's happened here. I think the big explanation is that He had this idea that Trump voters might be looking for an alternative. He could present himself as MAGA without the drama. And it turns out that people want the drama. They actually want Donald Trump rather than a pale imitation of him. And now Ron DeSantis has endorsed Donald Trump. John, what do you make of all of that? Well, I think it's both remarkable and inevitable in a way. Donald Trump has spent months attacking Ron DeSantis. Lots of those attacks have been puerile. He's, of course, come up with the nicknames which Donald Trump does. He's called him Ronda Sanctimonious. He's talked about DeSantis's height. DeSantis is not particularly tall. He's had a weird riff about how DeSantis eats pudding with his fingers. And all of this stuff is quite strange. Lots of it very personal. Uh, he's also, of course, attacked DeSantis's policies on all sorts of things in a pretty misleading way. And after all that, what does DeSantis do? Well, he turns around and A, withdraws from the campaign, but B, endorses Donald Trump on the way out. Donald Trump's political method, his way of managing the Republican Party, involves humiliating people who stand up to him and then getting them to turn around and pay fealty to him. And it's worked with Ron DeSantis. It reinforces his power and his dominance 
over the party. Why has DeSantis done this? Well, presumably, it's personal ambition. He knows, he's learned from bitter experience that it's very hard to prize Republican primary voters away from Donald Trump. And he's thinking about his future political career in the party. Now, with DeSantis out of the running, how does this change the Republican race? Well, in theory, it ought to be pretty good news for Nikki Haley, the former ambassador to the UN and former governor of South Carolina, who's Donald Trump's only serious opponent left in now. She came third in Iowa, not a great result. The polling suggests she's competitive in New Hampshire, which votes tomorrow. Were she to win there, she'd then go into South Carolina, her home state, And if she wins there, then suddenly she's won two out of three, and it looks like we have a real race on. Now, that's a pretty optimistic scenario for her. We have some polling on this, which was done for us by YouGov. If you look at the second preference of DeSantis voters, so if you ask DeSantis voters, who would you vote for if Ron DeSantis dropped out? About twice as many say they would vote for Donald Trump as say they would vote for Nikki Haley. And so though it sort of helps Haley... DeSantis being out of the field, it frees up some votes for her. It probably helps Donald Trump even more in reality. Of course, we'll be covering the results of the New Hampshire primary on Wednesday morning on The Intelligence. Our Washington bureau chief, Idris Kaloun, is there at the moment, wandering around the state and talking to voters. And we will also be talking about New Hampshire and the Republican primary on Checks and Balance this week. Which is available to subscribers of Economist Podcast Plus. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Ari. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. This morning, a crowd gathered at the Sri Ram Temple in the city of Ayodhya in India for a defining moment in the country's political evolution. Prime Minister Narendra Modi led a procession flanked by holy men, business titans, and Bollywood stars. The spectacle marked the inauguration of a Hindu temple on land where a mosque once stood. The ceremony will have delighted adherents of Hindutva, a strident form of Hindu nationalism promoted by Mr. Modi's ruling Bhartiya Junta Party. But beneath the spiritual pageantry lay a deeper message from the BJP a bid for the hearts, souls, and the votes of India's people. The opening of the Ram Temple in Ayodhya will really be the centerpiece of the BJP's campaign for a coming general election. Jeremy Page is The Economist's Asia diplomatic editor. It has totemic value for the party, which campaigned for decades to get it built. And it's a personal triumph for Narendra Modi, the prime minister, But it sends a very troubling message to Indian Muslims and many secular-minded Indians who fear that Mr. Modi wants to turn India into a Hindu state. So remind us about this temple, why it's so important here. 
Well, the BJP has really built its popularity on the IOD issue. Uh, the party was founded in 1980 as an offshoot of the Hindu nationalist movement, but it only rose to prominence about a decade later after it joined a campaign to build this temple in place of a 16th century mosque that was built on what Hindus believe is the birthplace of their deity, Ram. And then in 1992, the BJP helped to organise a rally of Hindu nationalists who tore down the mosque. And about 2,000 people, mostly Muslims, uh, were killed in the ensuing riots. Tonight in Ayodhya, the paramilitary police are back in control at the holy site where the trouble began. By dawn today, they'd cleared the site of the remaining few hundred militant Hindus who had taken part in the demolition of the 16th century mosque, an act that has thrown India into turmoil. Now, that was a very dark episode in the history of independent India for many of its more secular-minded citizens. But the BJP really took off after that, it won its first national election in 1996, the mosque site then got tangled in very complex legal disputes, but the BJP kept campaigning to get it built. And in 2019, the Supreme Court finally ruled that it should be built. So this opening ceremony is really a very big moment for the party and for Mr. Modi. So it's fulfilling a long-term promise that the Mr. Modi made, but also sends a deeper message. Yes, that's right. And it is, in effect, a rallying cry to the, the BJP's Hindu nationalist base. For them, this writes an, an ancient wrong. They believe that the mosque was built by Muslim invaders on one of their holiest sites. And this, for them, marks a new stage in their efforts to establish a nation really rooted in a Hindu national identity that they believe was suppressed for centuries by Muslim invaders and then British imperialists. But for the purposes of the election, it's not just about the temple. Mr. Modi's government is pouring some $9.6 billion into infrastructure around Ayodhya. They've built a new airport and railway station, and they've got these very grand plans to turn the whole city into a tourist destination that's going to have a Ram theme park. There are going to be fountain displays, about 60 new hotels, patriotic wedding venues. And this really encapsulates the BJP's broader national election pitch, which is that they are sort of combining this Hindu revivalism with economic development to build a proud, prosperous new India rooted in the faith of its majority. And how is that election pitch landing in the broadest sense? So it's appealing to many people, especially in northern and central India, the sort of Hindi-speaking heartland where most Indians live, and that's where the BJP draws most of its support historically. But for others, especially non-Hindus, it really represents the violence that the Ayodhya campaign unleashed. They see Mr. Modi's role in the inauguration as a breach of India's secular constitution, as well as a violation of rules against using state resources and election campaigns. And many of them fear that worse is to come if, as expected, Mr. Modi's party wins a third term in power in the election, which is due by April. And when you say worse may be to come, what does worse look like? Their worst fear is that the BJP ultimately wants to transform India into a sort of authoritarian Hindu state that treats religious minorities as second-class citizens. 
They accuse Mr. Modi's government of really whipping up the Hindu nationalist vote using rhetoric and policies that encourage discrimination and even violence against Muslims. Opposition and other critics of Mr. Modi also claim that he has undermined democratic institutions with attacks on the press, the courts, NGOs, the election commission. And they worry that in a third term, he might go even further, both in pushing the Hindu nationalist agenda by scrapping Muslim family laws, for instance. BJP activists also want to replace more mosques with temples at other disputed sites. And they worry that he might go even further towards centralizing power, especially after 2026, when there is supposed to be an expansion of parliament to reflect the growth in its population, and that could dramatically increase the number of seats in Parliament, with a lot of those new seats going to the more populous North, where the BJP has strong support. And we've talked a lot on the show about those changes and the sort of weakening of institutions. I I guess the question is, is there nothing to stop Mr. Modi, no popular or political force? So a lot depends on the outcome of this election and how Mr. Modi uses a new mandate, if he does indeed win again. There are reasons for the opposition to be concerned. India definitely has moved towards this illiberal end of the democratic spectrum in global terms. But there are some reasons for optimism as well. The BJP's grip on power isn't quite as strong as it looks. It's never drawn more than 40% of the popular vote in a national election. And there are pretty hard limits to its appeal in southern parts of India, which are generally more educated, uh, less populous, and a lot richer than the north. Now, the other important point is that a big factor in the BJP's success is the disarray of the opposition, especially the Congress party, its main national rival. Now, Congress has joined forces with other opposition parties in a 28-party alliance, but they really haven't agreed on a common message or strategy yet. But if they can do that, they might be able to limit the BJP's gains, uh, to stop it from getting a two-thirds majority in conjunction with its allies in Parliament. And they might, over the next few years, then learn from some of the BJP's core strengths, learn how to better exploit its weaknesses. So there is a chance that Indian democracy can self-correct, as it has indeed in the past. With all of those competing forces, then, how worried should the, the country's secularists be? The big question is how Mr. Modi, if he wins another term as expected, will strike a balance between the two pillars of his popularity, which are the Hindu nationalist movement and his economic development agenda. I think the concern is that if his economic program doesn't go according to plan, he might try to compensate by amping up the ideological side of things, or that he decides his ideological legacy is more important and pushes that Hindu nationalist agenda at the expense of the business environment and possibly at the expense of relations with South India as well. Jeremy, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. Every single person who has liked you in your lifetime were to light up on a map, it would create the most glitteringly beautiful network you could imagine. The British poet Donna Ashworth loves words. You can tell because on her website she calls herself Donna Ashworth, author and lover of words. Doubtless to distinguish herself from all those other authors who don't like words at all. 
Catherine Nixie is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. But Miss Ashworth also loves so much more than words, for as she says, what are we here to do if not love? So she also loves our magical planet and being kind and wrinkles, the child within us all, and putting meaningful things in italics. She also loves hope, for it is the light, and ageing and stretch marks, for they are by Mother Nature's paintbrush. The overall effect of reading her book feels less like you're reading poetry than as though ChatGPT had been asked to produce inspirational fridge magnets. Miss Ashworth's writing is, as one fan says, like a warm hug. Which is not something anyone ever said of the misanthropic poet Philip Larkin. But then again, people do not buy Larkin in their droves. Whereas in early January, Wild Hope, the latest of her eight books on poetry, reached number seven on the Amazon bestsellers list. And it is one of a handful of books behind a rise in British poetry sales for 2023 was the highest since records began, which is to say still extremely low, at just over £14 million. Britain may occasionally produce very good poets, but Britons are not much interested in them, and they certainly don't usually pay to read them. It wasn't always like this. Poets used to be marketable in this country. Lord Byron, who's often described as the first modern celebrity, could sell 10,000 copies of a poem in a single day. Even in the 20th century, a book of collected poems by John Betjeman could shift two and a half million copies. Nobody's quite sure what changed, but modernism may be partly to blame for the decline, since its avowed aim was to make literature deliberately difficult and hard to read, and it frowned on anything enjoyable. High-minded imprints do still publish books of poetry today. They tend to be by clever sorts who sound glum and use words like quixotic. Naturally, almost no one buys them. But Ms. Ashworth does sell, and not just on paper. She's one of a number of new poets for the Instagram age who market their work via social media, where she has over a million followers, and on websites. The poems might be of variable quality, but the accompanying products are just lovely. Ms. Ashworth's website offers a Wild Hope tote bag, £8, a scented candle, 30 quid, and a hoodie, 58 the site of an American poet, Rupi Kaur, offers not only books but a signed tapestry, $100, a t-shirt, $45, and a box of cards titled Writing Prompts Self-Love, which is not a phrase you find in the collected works of Virginia Woolf. But people really enjoy this feel-good poetry. They convinced me I only had a few good years left before I was replaced by a girl younger than me. As though men yield power with age, but women grow into irrelevance. It's easy to be sniffy about poetry always. And as the saying has it, no one ever put up a statue to a critic. But the problem with Insta-poetry is not that it doesn't obey poetic form. The English philosopher Jeremy Bentham once defined poetry as words that don't reach the end of the line. And much modern poetry, good and bad, obeys only him. And there's a lot of feel-good modern prose that comes pretty close to that definition of poetry too. One recent bestseller in this vein is The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and The Horse. What do you dream about? 
home. What's that like? I don't know, but I know I need one. Nor is the problem with this poetry is that it's often full of nice-sounding words. Poetry has always allowed for prettiness. Who knows or frankly cares what in Xanadu did Kubla Khan means when it just sounds so good. The problem with this poetry is that it doesn't feel true. Larkin gives the reader a shiver of pleasure, not because his lines are nice, very often they're not, but because they are spot on. Perhaps Instagram account holders do indeed look at their stretch marks and see Mother Nature's paintbrush, but it seems much more likely that they just think, damn. But then again, comparisons can be unfair in any area of life. As Miss Ashworth herself writes in a poem called Yuia, which is about the evils of comparison. Imagine if snow didn't dare to fall because rain was fallier, if planets did not glow because stars were glowier. You, she said, should stop all that folly because no one is yuier than you. And no one said a truer word than that. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know how you've been enjoying the shows by dropping us a line at podcasts at economist.com. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit eiu.com.